It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you here. My name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as the teaching pastor here at the church. And I ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. The book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Uh, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles on the back table. Uh, grab one of those Bibles and take it home. It's our gift uh, to you. You don't have to return it. You don't have to put any money down for it. Take it home and uh, uh, open yourselves up to the, the Word of God. And so uh, each week we uh, take God's Word and we open it up. And, and we've been in a series that we've entitled Ready. And uh, like I said, if you don't have a Bible, you can find our pastor on page 987, so you can follow along. And we've been looking at the idea of being ready in all circumstances, ready for whatever God may may bring our way, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's ugly. Uh, We have the hope that, that even though things may be difficult, God says that he will give us all the strength we need for the events of today, and he gives us a bright hope for tomorrow. You see, First uh, Thessalonians is going to talk about uh, the return of Jesus Christ, that one day Christ will come and he will uh, rescue his people from the daily grind of everyday life. And he's going to do that and rescue us once and for all uh, from the presence of sin. And we can have hope uh, for that truth to uh, become a reality, maybe in our life or maybe uh, in the lives of our children or maybe uh, 50 generations from now. We don't know, but we have the hope that he's going to do that. And we've been in this series looking at this letter. It's a first century letter, so it's written about 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in northern Greece in a city called Thessalonica that is still alive and well today, a second largest city in all of Greece today. And he writes them, and he articulates to them some important truths. And the reason why he's writing this letter is because uh, he had only spent a short time with the people of, of Thessalonica. They had come to know Jesus, They had begun to walk the walk and talk the talk and began to honor God and serve God in in amazing ways. And then all of a sudden, a mob grows up of people that are angry about the ways of Christianity, the truths of Christianity, and they run Paul and his companions Silas and Timothy out of the town. And they find themselves in the city of Athens. You know Athens, Athens, Greece, and the southern part of the nation of Greece. And now time has gone. Some believe as short as six months. Others believe maybe as long as a year, a year and a half. And Paul is starting to get anxious. He's starting to wonder that work that we did in Thessalonica, those people that we have just loved, they are our hope and our glory. Uh, We love to boast about them and all that they do. I'm wondering if they're okay. They were so young in the faith. I wonder if they're going to be okay. And what we're going to learn today in our passage as we begin to open up the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3 is a little bit more of the story and the truths of how you and I can be ready as they were. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Here's our text for this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Here's what Paul says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore... We could bear it no longer. 
We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Father God, as we've gathered in this place already, and as our brothers and sisters at the three other campuses of Village Bible Church gather and open this text this morning, uh, we give you honor and glory for your written word that changes and transforms lives. We thank you how it changed and transformed the life of the people in Thessalonica when this letter was first written. We're thankful for how it impacted Paul and Silas and Timothy. And we're thankful how it has impacted the lives of millions upon millions of Christians throughout church history. And now it comes to us. And it comes to our church. And we pray, Lord, that it would do the same transforming work now as it has in the past. So we ask for your Spirit's leading and guidance. I pray that you would speak through me in a way that would honor you in all ways. Now we give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. If you haven't already, grab that sermon outline sheet as you follow along. And I want to look at our text under three headings this morning. And all of us know right now, you can't get away from it, almost on every channel we know and recognize we're in the middle of a presidential uh, election cycle. There are more than a dozen uh, men and women that are vying for what is seemingly the most important job on the face of the earth. Some would say the very, the most difficult of all jobs. The presidency has a lot of facets to it, a lot of components to it. And did you know that one of the job descriptions for our president is that he needs to be in 180 different places at once? Did you know that? Did you know that every day he needs to represent himself and represent our country in 180 different places? Now we know that uh, President Obama does not have superhuman strength, nor does he have the ability, as Jesus Christ did, to, to be at different places at the same time. So how does our president, and as President Obama has, and as President Bush before him, how in the world could they be in 180 places at once? You see, as the president, as the executor, the job of the president is to be our lead, if you will, diplomat in all things. What that means is he's our chief negotiator, he's our chief um, uh, one who deals with foreign relations, he's the executor uh, of all that uh, we do. And while the branches of government do different things, that's one of the chief jobs. And we have relations with 180 different countries. 180 different countries that there are all kinds of issues and struggles that are going on in each particular place. Economies are different, religions are different, uh, ways of life are different in all of those countries. And if the United States is going to be a part of a global uh, community, then we need to make sure that we are addressing all of those with our neighbors here on this earth. Well, how do we do that? Well, the president can't be all of those places at once, and so the president appoints 
with the help of Congress, ambassadors to go who speak on his behalf, who speak with his authority, and who address for him in place of him all the different relationships that we have going on with the countries around the world. He, we do that so that we will be good neighbors and we will help in times of need, that we'll make sure that all things are done in a fair and orderly way. And so the president depends on these men and women to serve effectively in the countries where they're at. And one thing we need to remember about being an ambassador is usually you're going to be outnumbered. You see, an ambassador lives on what is called uh, the grounds of the embassy. And, and there, that land there, within that sovereign country, let's say of South Africa or Colombia or, or Thailand, is American soil. That little area that they have is, is sovereign territory of the United States. But as that ambassador leaves that sovereign ground, he must recognize and she must recognize that she is a minority Uh, that there's not a lot of Americans in that particular country. Well, here's all the truth that comes to this. We're going to learn about an ambassador today. Timothy is going to be sent out by Paul because Paul can't be there. And he's going to be sent out to serve. And we're reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that Timothy isn't the only ambassador appointed by Paul or appointed by God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are all Christ's ambassadors. That if we bow the knee to Jesus Christ, if we call ourselves a Christ follower, we have been given a job that we are representing our king and our country, but not the king and country of the United States, but the kingdom of heaven and the ruler of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. We do so by going and serving in a place where that king and the country may not be fully realized. And we go and we may be a minority in that. And what is our job? Our job is to tell the world around us the message of the one who has sent us. And just as Timothy is going to share with the Thessalonians all that Paul had shared with him, so we are called as God's ambassadors to share all that Christ has shared with us. And so before us this morning is a model on what it means to be a good ambassador, how we ought to serve, how we ought to take care of our own lives, the things that we need to be concerned about. And I want to look at these this morning under three headings. The first thing I want you to see this morning, if we're a part of God's state department, if we're a part of the ambassadorship of Jesus Christ, the first thing we need to recognize this morning is we must understand that God is calling us, God is calling us to serve others. He's calling us to serve others. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And you're sitting with Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and you're enjoying in Athens some great gyros, some incredible Greek yogurt, having a side of kebabs, and then just to wash everything down, some sweet baklava. And here you are, and you're talking, and, 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 and Silas turns to Paul, and he says, Paul, why aren't you eating? You love this stuff. We even got you extra gyro sauce, man. That's, you love that. Why aren't you eating? Why do you look so depressed? And Paul says, you know what? I can't get my mind off of the Thessalonians. Man, remember those sweet times of fellowship we had? Do you remember how we shared the gospel with them and how they received the word of God? 
How they with open hearts and, and warm hearts received us and they loved on us and they cared for us and they ministered to us and, and we loved them and, and we were there not for any other motive but to raise them up in the ways of God and in the ways of his word. What a great time. The people we got to know. And then that fateful day, you guys remember, when the mob came, I was scared. I wondered what they were going to do, and they manhandled us, and they, they grabbed us, and they took us out. They, they tried to imprison us. They drove us out from the city. And remember Jason and his friends? They were fined because they even knew us. And we went over to Berea, not far from there, you remember? And we spent some time in Berea, only to have those same thugs come to Berea and run us out of Berea. Guys, I miss Thessalonica. I miss those great people. I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if they're still walking with the Lord. I wonder if they're getting together or getting along with one another. I wonder if some of those same uh, persecutors aren't hurting and, and, and trying to hinder the work of God in their lives. I wonder if they've fallen for some false doctrine and false teaching. Oh, how I miss the Thessalonians. And then Paul looks up and he goes, I got an idea. Paul and Silas, we can't go. The last time we went, we were imprisoned. We can't show our face. We might hurt the Thessalonians by, by coming again and associating ourselves with them. So we can't go. But Timothy, you're young enough. The authorities never worried about you. You were never imprisoned. You never got, got involved in all of that mob action. You could go back. And you could go and you could find out how things are going. And you could make sure things are, are being done in an orderly way. And you can take them by the hand and you can love on them and, and minister to them. As you know, Paul, I, I, Paul and Silas would do. Would you go do that? It tells us Timothy. I love that name. I'm not sure why. But I love it. And it's amazing. When I see that name, I am so quick to ask the question, what does that passage have to do with me? You see, when you, if you have the luxury, and I do believe it's a luxury to have your name in the scriptures, it makes it really easy to then apply that particular text to your own life. It's kind of like when you're in a room and someone yells your name and calling for someone else. You still look. And so Paul says, hey, Timothy, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we want you to be a part of. This is what we think your mission should be. And so what does he do? He says, Timothy, you're going to go. You're going to be our ambassador. You're going to be the one who tells the Thessalonians how to live godly lives. Now, Timothy, he's a young dude. In 1 Timothy chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 4, the scripture says that uh, Paul tells him that no one should look down on you for your youth. And so he was a young man in 1 Timothy when that letter is written. We need to understand that 1 Thessalonians is written 10 years before 1 Timothy. So 10 years later, he's still being called young, naive. And so we don't know how old he may have been. Many scholars believe Timothy is maybe in his early 20s, at, late, at the oldest, maybe his early 30s. He's a young man, no, at no place ready to serve as a philosopher in Greek culture or as a rabbi in Jewish culture. But they're going to send him. 
The great thing about Timothy in this situation is Timothy, we know, has a Greek father and a uh, Jewish mother. He's going to a city that's a Greek city where the language would be Greek, but there was a synagogue in Thessalonica, and so there were enough Jews in the land of Thessalonica to populate a synagogue, a place of worship. So he's going to go in, and he's going to have the uncanny ability, even though he's young, to be able to speak both languages to be able to understand both cultures and to speak with some level of authority into each of those cultures and the people's lives. But what we know about Timothy is a couple things that, that maybe aren't going for him. His name is Timothy maybe because he's known for being an incredibly timid man. Paul over and over again tells him that he has to stand up for what is right. To stand up against... Uh, people that are trying to knock him and the church down. He's a sickly man. He has all kinds of stomach issues. And Paul's always trying to tell him, hey, try this, take that. It'll help your unsettled stomach, maybe because of his anxiety in his heart. And so Paul sends this Timothy, and he sends him up the road. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about Timothy. There's nowhere in all of Scripture especially in First and Second Thessalonians, that you get any excuses from Timothy as to why he shouldn't go. This young man, who's never, from what Scripture helps us to understand, never has been outside of the shadow of Paul and Silas, is now given a Lone Ranger assignment to head up to Thessalonica, which is going to be a decent journey. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And he's going to have to lead the people. And he says, you know what, uh, guys, you know, nowhere in the text does it say, hey, I ran games, but I never led the Bible study. Oh, Paul, I was okay to open in prayer for the group, but, but you're asking me to preach the word. He doesn't say, you know what, that's a long journey, I don't want to go. He doesn't say, I don't have the time. He doesn't come up with all the excuses that we come up with. He says with obedience, I'll do it. I remember in, it seems like forever ago, the last presidential cycle, when during a Republican presidential debate, uh, John Huntsman, who was the ambassador to China under President uh, Obama, was being charged with the idea that he was in essence working for the enemy, working for a Democratic president. Of which John Huntsman said, when the President of the United States asks for your help and calls you into service, you do it. I like that. I like it even more for us as Christians, right? That when God calls, when God says, I need you to serve, I want you to serve, our response is not excuses. Our response is not looking at our calendar saying, gee whiz, I wish. Our response isn't, I'm not qualified enough. Our response is, yes, I will do it. And this is exactly what Timothy does. And so notice what, what Timothy does. Notice on the maps that I have in front of you, we've got the first map uh, of the area of uh, um, Europe and Africa here at the bottom. We've got the Middle East. Uh, Jerusalem and Israel are down here in the bottom right corner. And where we're focused in on is the nation of Greece there in the middle. And we see that the nation of Greece, to the north, you have Thessalonica, to the south. Let's go to the next slide. Then, of course, we've got now a closer picture of the nation of Greece. This is the way that uh, Timothy would have taken to Thessalonica. 
It is called the Ignatian Way. It was there in the first century, and it's still there today. Now, in that journey, what would he be doing? Where would he, what would be his thoughts? What would be uh, his process in moving forward? I want you to notice three things that Paul told Timothy to do. First of all, write this down, that he was to encourage the world with the gospel. He says in the text that we are going to send Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. He's going to encourage the world with the gospel. Go back to that, uh, that previous screen for a moment, Phil. What's he going to do on that trip? As he's walking, and I want you to remember, because we read many times the scriptures through our lens, listen, I can tell you with all assuredness, this is not what he did. As soon as he waves goodbye to Paul and Silas, he puts his earbuds in and turns the iPod on and starts heading out. Just going on a journey, never talking to anybody. I have a teenage son, and my teenage son, once those headphones come on, he's dead to the world. Amen? Okay? He doesn't need to talk. He doesn't. It's funny. The guy who eats all the time and needs all kinds of sustenance, as long as he has his music, he's good. And he can go for hours not talking to a single person. But Timothy wouldn't have that luxury. As you walk the Ignatian way, as you ride a horse, whatever his mode of transportation was, he would have come into contact with hundreds of people. And, and during the first century, uh, the way of travel was the way of commerce. We didn't have Amazon. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have newspaper ads for sales. And so as you ran into people, you would stop and have conversations with people. And the questions would usually start out like this. Hey, who are you? Where are you from? Where are you going? And what's your business? And for many, they would say, my business is go to do commerce here and to go and sell my, my uh, wares there. Uh, or maybe I'm going to visit family. Timothy didn't have any of those reasons. Timothy's reason was the following. To be honest with you, I'm going as a follower of Jesus Christ to a church in the city of Thessalonica. You see, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ who is a Nazarene who in Jerusalem preached and taught the word of God. He was a man of God set apart by signs and wonders. But the chief priest and the people of his day turned away from him and put him on a cross. And there was a lot of question on what would happen to that Jesus after that cross. But he said three days he would rise, and he did. And now there's a whole group of us And we're followers of this Jesus, and we're followers of his resurrection, looking to one day see his return. And so I'm going to Thessalonica to a whole group of people because I want you to know this gospel is changing lives. It's impacting both Jew and Gentile alike. And I've been given the job by one of, uh, one of the men who has seen Jesus Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection, who has bowed the knee to Jesus. His name is Paul. And he's a great teacher in his own right. And he has sent me to go make sure the church has all that it needs. Well, how are you going to do that? I'm going to love on them. I'm going to minister to them. I'm going to care for them. Well, we don't do that. In our world, it's dog eat dog. It's survival of the fittest. Why would you do that? Because Christ's love compels us to do that. You see, for many of us, when we talk evangelism, 
We talk about evangelism in this box that we have to have all the right words and we have to have all the right props and all of that. I want you to understand evangelism at the heart of it is speaking about your journey of Christ, with Christ, with other people. And so tomorrow there are going to be people who are going to be on this journey of life. And many times what we will do is we will seek to just talk about what they're talking about. Do what they're doing. Live like they're living. Because we don't want to look any different than the world. We just want to look like we're going about the world's business. But what Paul makes clear is that our entire life, all of who we are, should point people to see that everything we do is leading people to Jesus. What'd you do this weekend? I went to church. Why would you go to church? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. He's changed my life. Well, what do you do at church? We open the word of God. We sing songs that announce the greatness of, of all that God has done. We pray prayers. We reach out to people. We love on people. We share our tithes and, and offerings to the Lord. We give to people who are in need. We make sure that everybody has what they need so nobody is in want. Hey, what did you do this weekend? Well, I watched some football. Wow. We're on a different journey. You see, and we don't have to do it in a pompous way. We just need to let people know what the work that God is doing in our lives. And we do it in our comings and goings. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I serve, the reason why I live, is because he's called me to be his ambassador. He encourages the world with the gospel. Number two, once he gets to Thessalonica, what is he to do? He's to establish the faith of others. Notice when he gets there, Verse 2 says, to establish and exhort you, the Thessalonians, in your faith. The word to establish, literally in the Greek, is, means to make stable, to set firmly, to fix, to strengthen, to render constant, to confirm one's ideas or mind. The idea here is that Paul is deeply concerned, and I'm going to show some of my age that Paul is concerned that the Thessalonian church is full of Christians who look like jello jigglers. Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. You remember your mom used to, to make the molds of the, of the jello into shapes and you could hold them up and you go like this and they would just wiggle, wiggle, wiggle? I'm starting to notice that on the bottom side of my arm when I... Okay? There's no form to it. There's no structure to it. It just kind of wiggles around. There's nothing setting it in place. And Paul says, that's not good for us as Christians. And what a truth for us today. Some of us are jello jiggler Christians. Just kind of here, but, but not really. Not really holding to any real stance of belief or, or, or pursuit in life. And the reason why they, he's concerned about it is he knows he left them with all kinds of trials and tribulations. He's going to speak to the issue of afflictions in their life. And he says, hey, I don't want you to just be wobbling around in this world. I want you to be set firm and resolute. And how true is that for us as parents when it comes to our kids? We don't want our kids to just be jiggling around, if you will, uh, going here and there and everywhere. We want them to have a set of ideals and, 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 and uh, um, positions and ideas that are resolute and have a biblical worldview surrounded by it. So he says, I want to establish you. 
There's a passage in the Old Testament that speaks of a great story where the children of Israel were fighting their enemies. And God had commanded his great leader, Moses, to lead the people into battle, to stand at a high place so that all of the soldiers of Israel could see him. And he says, here's what your job is. You are to direct them, and they need to know that their leader is with them. And so what I want you to do, Moses, I want you to hold with your arms outstretched and the staff of Aaron in your hands. I want you to hold that pose so that the men of Israel will always know you are there, and it's a symbol that I am with you and I am with them in battle. Well, the battle goes on for quite a long time. The Bible says that it goes on into the evening. And poor Moses hasn't worked his upper body like he should have. He's growing tired. And he begins to wobble. Have you ever had to, uh, probably the worst thing in the world to ever do if you don't do it on a daily basis is to hang ceiling drywall. Your arms are up here. I mean, that's, that's how we should punish criminals, right? Just put them up like that and you just stay there. And every, I mean, it's excruciating pain. I get it. I'm out of shape. All right. But, but it's painful. And what begins to happen is when your arms are there, things start to shake. They become to wobble as if you can't take it anymore. Well, when Moses was struggling with that, his brother and his friend Aaron, his brother Aaron and his friend Hur know what God has told Moses and knows Moses isn't on his own going to be able to stand in that pose so that the, lead, the, the men of Israel will be victorious. And so one of them on one side and another on the other side hold up his arm to give him relief and to establish him so that he can hold that position. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Go to a wobbly group of Christians and give them some steadfastness. Make sure that they are able to stand under the weight. You see, those afflictions and those trials were weighing them down. And what we as Christians need to understand is God is calling us to do the same thing. To go and see someone who's shaking, who's struggling, and to say, hey, we don't say just drop it, dummy. It's too heavy for you. We don't yell at them and say, well, it's your fault you lifted that heavy item. What we do is we come and we strengthen up their arms to hold up things. Some friends of ours, dear friends of ours on Friday came for a casual night of fellowship. And it turned into a a deep night as hurts and pains in their family began to come out. And, and, And our job, Amanda and ours, wasn't to say, hey, you guys are dumb. You guys are foolish. Our job was to love on them and to take their arms and hold their arms so they can carry the weight that's before them. This morning, people have walked in with wobbly legs and wobbly arms And they're dying for someone to come and establish them. Paul loved the Thessalonians enough to send Timothy to strengthen them. But notice, it goes beyond that. It goes to them then him exhorting others to grow in Christ. That word exhort there in our text is the Greek word parakaleo. Uh, You've probably heard of that phrase in the Greek before. Uh, For those who have been around the Scriptures, we call the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the helper, the one who comes alongside. And that's the definition of parakaleo. Timothy's job was to come and to encourage by coming alongside of the people. Why? Because they were in danger of falling spiritually. 
giving up on their faith and walking away. On our cruise a couple weeks ago, we did things that um, you wouldn't think you could do in the Caribbean Sea. Uh, We went ice skating. You see, on the boat, there was an ice rink. And we went ice uh, skating. Let me rephrase that. Four Bidals went ice skating. There are health concerns about putting uh, this large of a carcass on thin blades. So I was the cameraman. And uh, Noah did a great job. He, he rollerblades a lot, so uh, ice, no big deal for him. Joshua did a pretty good job. He's, he's had some uh, fun roller skating and stuff. Luke had a miserable time. Every time that little boy touched the ice, he was on his butt. And he was disappointed. And he was frustrated. But there was a pro in our family. Gold medalist. My wife Amanda, she loves ice skating. And she does a great job. She can skate forward. She can skate backward. She she enjoys it. We don't do it enough, she would say. And she took my son, our son, and, and, and lifted him up and said, hold my hand Let's do this together. And when she did that, Luke started to skate. He no longer was finding himself going and down on the ground. He was actually skating. He was enjoying the very thing that, that he longed to do, that he couldn't do on his own. Why? Because he had one who came alongside of him, took him by the hand, who was good at doing what he was called to do, but couldn't do it on his own. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to grab the hand of the Thessalonians, and I want you to come alongside of them, which means there's got to be intimacy. You can't do this via Skype, right? It's going to be a little hard. So you're going to go, and you're going to take them by the hand, and you who find yourself wobbling along, you're going to come, and you're going to help them do what they couldn't do on their own. So you're going to teach them. You're going to minister to them. You're going to model for them what being a Christian is. Which begs the question this morning, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, which we all are, how are we doing this morning at encouraging the world with the gospel, establishing others uh, in their faith, and then coming alongside of them and encouraging them and exhorting them in such a way that they can do what God has called them to? That's what being an ambassador is, and that's the job of the church and the elders of the church to lead in that way. So who do you know that's going through troubles? Who's maybe new to the faith? Who finds themselves struggling? We have no idea what God has called us to. And here's the thing. You say, well, how do I do this? I'll tell you. You change the way you come in on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, many of us come, or it's, oh, what about me? I hope they sing the songs I sing. I hope Tim's message impacts me. I hope that people make sure they ask about my week and stuff like that. Why don't you flip the coin and say this? When I go to church, I hope they sing the songs of the person sitting next to me that they'll be changed. I hope Tim's message will impact them. I hope that that people will enter into their lives, and and me included, that I won't uh, say, well, I don't know that person, so walk by them, but I'm going to get involved in their lives and understand who they are and make sure that they don't leave this place the same way they came in, but they would feel loved and nurtured and cared for and ministered to so that they would leave a little more established, a little more encouraged in the faith that God has given them. Ambassadors are called to serve others. But notice in verse 3, he changes it, and he says, but by the way, Timothy, 
Let's remember that as an ambassador, you have to be concerned about yourself as well. You can't just worry about others. You've got to worry about yourself as well. So he says that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it came to pass and just as you know. Paul shifts his grammar going from you to us or to we. And he's saying, all right, we need to make sure that we're not moved by these afflictions. And while I'm anxious and while I'm struggling to know, Paul says, how you're doing, I'm not moved in such a way that I'm losing my faith, but I'm concerned you might be. And one of the things that we've got to understand is I bring that illustration of Amanda back. If Amanda's falling on her face on the ice, then what good is she going to be for my son? And so the person who's doing the ministry must be a person who is unmoved by the things of the world. So notice what Paul says. He pivots to Timothy and he says, okay, are you unmovable? Are things going to be a problem for you? You're going into battle. You're a young man. You're timid. Are you going to be resolute? And notice what he says. He says, Timothy, you need to remain steadfast in your footing. Write that down. You need to remain steadfast in your footing. He says that none of us be moved. We can't be God's ambassadors. Listen, you can't be God's ambassadors if you're unsure of your calling. You got to know why you're in that foreign land. You got to know why you're that minority uh, in a world that's focused in on self and sin. So Paul's worried about the Thessalonians. He's worried that they're moved. Remember, they're wobbly Christians. And that they may be moved by all kinds of things. When he shares the phrase that no one be moved, it's a Greek word that was, had two uses to it. The first one is, is you would use that phrase that we translate not be moved of a dog that's waving its tail or wagging its tail. And you have an excitable dog. The dog is starting to wag its tail. It's excited and its tail is moving to and fro. It's vacillating, oscillating, if you will, from one side to another. And the idea there is, is it speaks of a person who is like the tail of a dog that's being whacked. They're here today, they're over here tomorrow, and they have no position, no set idea. Back to that jello jiggler idea. They're unstable in all that they do, being tossed to and fro, the book of James says. And Paul's worried that young Christians would vacillate from the truth of Scripture one day to the truth of the world or the lies of the world the next. And for us today, that what a truth that is. We go to church on Sunday and we say, praise be to God. Man, God's word is true. Then we get into the world and we, sh if you will, shuttle the, um, uh, the uh, word of God in our lives. And we begin to live the lies of the devil in the world. And we begin to follow their ways and do it their, in their life and in their ways of life. We vacillate. And Paul says to Timothy, you, not, you cannot be moved. You're going to be the north star. You're going to be their compass. You've got to be that point that doesn't move so that when they see you and they watch your modeling of this faith, that they themselves won't be moved. Like a dog who's wagging its tail. But notice the second phrase that's used of this idea of being moved is the idea of one who is literally trembling. 
shaking. So the idea is movement with this word. And instead of being secure and stable, you're either a dog that's wagging his tail to the left and to the right, or you're a person that is shaking, literally convulsing. And the convulsing comes from one of two reasons. You would use this Greek word if you saw someone shaking in fear. You would say, hey, you're moving all over the place. Your fear is driving you to a place it shouldn't be. Or you would use this phrase when you saw someone so filled with rage that they found themselves shaking. That the very essence of what's going on in the heart is manifesting itself in bodily uh, movements. And Paul says whether you're fearful, the, the uh, Thessalonians could be fearful, persecution is all around them, they're scared, and they're going to give up on the faith, or they would become angry because of the persecutors, and they would start to do to the persecutors what the persecutors were doing to them. Hey, I don't like these guys that keep coming in and raising havoc in our church. Let's get a group of us together and let's go beat them up. That's godly. That's right. Let's go give them some of what we, what, what they gave to us. They deserve it. Let's go get our revenge. Paul says that we should not be moved whether in fear or in rage, but that we should understand, and Timothy needs to model this for them, that because God is in control, we can have a certainty to the issues of life. We can know we remain steadfast. And what does he say? He goes on and he tells us, by the way, recognize that affliction is your fate. Recognize that affliction is your fate. Write that down. He says, by these afflictions, I want you to know, guys, these worries of, of the affliction that you're dealing with, the persecution, the trials and tribulation, they're, they're a part of our reality. God promised them to us. Christ preached about them. The apostles dealt with them. And you've seen us have to deal with them firsthand. We have to deal with these afflictions. Now, what a sober thought that Paul gives. We are destined for this. I wonder how the prosperity preachers would preach this passage. I don't think it's a part of their liturgy or preaching schedule. Because in the prosperity gospel, you don't deal with afflictions. Everything's going well for you. The gospel means health, wealth, and happiness. Paul tells Timothy, we're destined for afflictions. So don't be surprised, Peter says, when afflictions and trials of many kinds come your way, as if something strange is happening to you. Let me tell you this about affliction and the Christian life. Because what Paul is saying is very important. For the Christian, we recognize we're on the road that leads to heaven. But if that's the case, why does it feel like hell so often? Why does the road of salvation feel at times like the road of condemnation? Why does the road of assurance and certainty feel at times like the road of wavering and doubt? The reason why God would allow the Thessalonians to go through trials and afflictions is the same reason why God allows it for us. God could have said, as soon as you come to know Christ, everything will go well with you. But nowhere in Scripture do we see that in any way. In fact, the most faithful individuals are the ones that seemingly have it the most difficult. And so why would God allow suffering? Write these three things down very quickly. First of all, the reason why God allows us to deal with affliction and why we're destined to affliction is because 
we have the opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ. As Christ followers, we get the unique opportunity to follow Christ. Well, you would know in any relationship that you don't just hang out with your friends when things are going well. A friendship is really like following and and being a fan of the Cubs. In the good, the bad, and the hundreds of years of ugly, you stay committed. If you're a real friend, when your friend calls and says, I won the lotto, you cheer for them. You shouldn't play the lotto. But you cheer for them, and you're excited for them. But as a true friend, when the friend calls and says, we're broke, you're there for them as well. And for a lot of us as Christians, we are willing to be with Jesus when, when Jesus' friendship with us brings us something. But what the Bible makes clear is if we really want to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must be ready to suffer with Christ and participate in the sufferings. Let me tell you something. Amanda and I have just celebrated our, our 18th wedding anniversary, and on Facebook I wrote, I wouldn't want to live life's ups and downs with anyone but you. Because I'll tell you, we've had a great life, and we've had wonderful times of, of, of triumph and celebration, and I'm glad she's been by my side. But i got to be honest with you, it has been the greatest joy to walk alongside my wife in her season of struggle. Because in those moments, there's a greater intimacy. In those moments, we get to watch how, how God grows us in those circumstances. And how wonderful, because I want to be there for her, because I know in my times of struggle, it's sure good to have a friend there. And so we partner and participate with Christ in his suffering. Number two, suffering and affliction will always give the allowance for the production of character and perseverance. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds, James tells us. Those trials produce character and perseverance, and perseverance hope, a hope that does not satisfy. And so we need to recognize this morning that trials and tribulations grow us deeper. They, uh, we are like trees in times of drought that are digging our roots deeper into the ground to find the sustenance and the nutrients that we need, the water that's deeper in the water table so that we may flourish. Trials dig deep into the ground of our faith to allow us to grow. Finally, trials give you and I a hunger for Christ's return. If everything's going great, if everything goes the way we want it to, then why does Jesus need to return? If we're so happy in this world of sin, in this world of struggle, then why in the world would we need Jesus to come and redeem and reconcile all things to himself? Why would we need God to renew anything? But as we grow older, we come to realize that this life is meaningless, meaningless, utter meaningless, as Solomon did, because we work, we toil, we, we do all these things, and there's nothing new under the sun. And we say to the Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This isn't satisfying, but I want to be with you, and I want to see you face to face. And so affliction gives us a hunger for Christ's return. You see, we need troubles, not so that they can shake us out of our Christianity, but so that they can grow us. But we need people to stand side by side us. And Paul finishes this text, and this point is very short, so don't get nervous. And he gives one final truth about being an ambassador. 
He says, tell others and serve others with the gospel. Take care of yourself. Make sure you're the right uh, uh, kind of ambassador you need to be, being the light in a world of darkness. But then he says, be careful. Notice there's a warning about the danger. Verse 5, he says the following, for this reason I could not bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. There are two things we are warned about there. Paul, gives, Paul wants a status report of the faith of the Thessalonians. Many of you know I run a catering business and I send out crews to go do events. And, and the, the worst moment of a catering job for my crew is the inevitable phone call or phone calls that Tim makes to the crew leader on the job. I want to know how the job's going. They think their boss is meddling, right? And that's the great thing. I say I pay the bills, I get to meddle, so live with it. Okay? But what I want is a status report. Are you there? Things going as they should have? How's the food looking? How are the customers doing? Any questions? Should be a quick status report. And usually is. I want that because I have a vested interest in what's going on there, and I'm not there. I'm not represent, I'm represented there, but I'm not there personally. So I'm looking for some feedback on what's going on with their own eyes on the ground to see what's going on. And they give that report. Paul is asking Timothy, give me a status report. And notice what he says. He says, I sent to learn about your faith. How are the Thessalonians doing, Timothy? Are they growing? Are they maturing? Or have they grown, uh, or have they gone into neutral? What a great reminder for us today as we enter into a new year to ask the question, each of us as employees have received our W-2s for the year, right? Hopefully you have. If not, go talk to your accounting department at work. Your W-2. Your W-2 tells you all that has transpired in the year before, right? What you got paid, your vacation time that was used, your hours of uh, overtime maybe you got, and it gives a synopsis of what your year looks like. And you're able to look back, and you don't remember all of that, but you now can have on a sheet of paper, here's what got accomplished this year. Uh, This week, we're going to be turning out our annual report for the church, and it's going to give a report what we did last year. And as Christians, we need to do an annual report in our lives and ask the question, from January 2015 to December of 2015, has there been growth in my life? Have I changed? Have I become more like Christ? Paul is asking for a status report. Every Christian should ask, am I growing in my walk with Jesus Christ? Are there areas of service that I wasn't doing a year ago that I'm doing now? Am I more uh, open and bold about my faith than I was then than I am now? we got to ask those questions. And each of us this morning need to stop and say, am I really growing in my faith? One pastor puts it this way, there are only two gears in the car that is Christianity, forward and reverse. But so many Christians believe there's a neutral. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. How are you in your faith? The final thing is always being warned to defend against the foe. To defend against the foe. He's worried about the tempter. He says that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let me close with this thought. A little over a year ago, Uh, The United States came under attack. It came under attack and we lost American lives. A group of enemies came, 
came onto our soil and took Americans' lives in cold blood. Oh, I'm not talking about San Bernardino. I'm not talking about the World Trade Center or the Pentagon. I'm talking about in a far-flung country called Libya. You see, in a city called Benghazi, we had a sovereign territory called a consulate, a place where ambassadors would reside, a place where the diplomats, the residents of the America who would serve the people of Libya would reside, and, and, and they attacked. Why? Why would they attack there? Why wouldn't they attack the homeland? The answer is very easy. Those men and women that came and attacked the consulate in Benghazi knew that there was no chance that they could do that in the homeland, right? It would never happen. Our Air Force, our Navy, our military would have stopped it. Our police force would have stopped it. There's no way that could have happened. They could have never accomplished that. So what did they do? They did the next best thing. They went to the missional outpost of the United States, and they attacked it there. Listen to me. The devil, this is very important before I close, the devil cannot attack heaven. That's off limits. God will deal with him very quickly. So what does the devil do? He does the next best thing. He goes after the ambassadors. You and me. And he goes to our missional outposts. Tim and Hinckley, you in Yorkville, you in Aurora, you in your workplace, you in your school. And he tempts you. Because he says, if I can get this ambassador to stop doing what he's supposed to do, then people won't come to know Jesus. If I can get him focused in on other things, living in the country as if he's one of their inhabitants, he'll forget that the job that he's been given from the homeland is to be an ambassador with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, to Timothy, don't forget, the devil is there. Peter tells us he's a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. The tempter is active. Are you an ambassador this morning? Learn the truths that we learn from Timothy and his faithfulness. And the example that we get from the Thessalonians, and we will be ready as ambassadors for what God calls us to, whether it's today or tomorrow. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the time in your word. And Lord, I pray that we would first of all ask the question, am I an ambassador of yours? Maybe there's someone here this morning, Lord, that before they can even talk about being an ambassador for Christ, must first have one who's an ambassador who comes to them and shares the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if someone here has never trusted you as their Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, that they wouldn't leave this place without asking questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to claim for oneself the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, to bow the knee in obedience to Jesus. But Lord, for the vast majority of us, we are followers of yours. We strive to do what you've called us to. And I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would serve you in this way. Thank you for Timothy's example, for the faithfulness of doing what was difficult. Lord, cause us to do the difficult things. Give us the faith and the grace to do that. Empower us by your spirit to go and serve as your ambassadors in our workplaces and in our schools in our communities, and our families, so that they may know what our King is telling the world. We love you that you've given us this opportunity. We recognize that this is a great treasure found in jars of clay, as the Scripture says. And so we go boldly from this place, 
with the heart of the gospel in our hearts and in our mouths so that we may tell others of you and all the good you do. Now send us forth in peace now, in fellowship, that we may encourage and exhort one another, that we might come alongside those that are hurting, and that we may show the love of Christ that is needed in this world, first to the people of God, and second to the world. We love you, and we ask for safety now as we travel out, protection from temptation as we go through this week. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.